it's easy to read about statistics that are, you know, happening to a certain segment of the population that you're not a part of that group. So you think that's their problem. It's not true. We're all connected. And healthcare disparities and things like that, it's a form of injustice. And just to, you know, evoke Martin Luther King, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. It's absolutely true. My baby's life is important. Your baby's life is important. All of our baby's lives are important, right? So prematurity and infant mortality is not just a number. It's Saul. It's Tristan. It's our babies. They had lives and we wanted them. I'm Lexi. And I'm Zach. And you're listening to Proximity, a podcast where we examine the forces that draw us closer and those that push us apart, one story at a time. Hi, everyone. Today, we've got a conversation centered around the issue of systemic racism in healthcare, specifically as it relates to infant and maternal health. And we're talking with two women who have experienced this issue firsthand. The first of the two women is Kimberly Novod. I first connected with Kimberly a handful of years ago when I was publicly sharing about my own grief journey online. She lives in New Orleans, and she runs her own nonprofit called Saul's Light that helps and supports families who have kids in the NICU. Her friend and colleague, Demetra Smith, is our second guest today. She sits on the board of Kimberly's nonprofit. She's also a nurse practitioner, a certified nurse midwife, and on her way to her doctorate. Both women's stories intersect with the issue at the center of today's episode, and both are deeply moving. So I asked if they would be willing to share a little bit about their past experiences to begin. Here's Kimberly sharing about being pregnant with her first child, Saul. He was our first child. And so I think, um, you know, looking back or hindsight, missing those instincts or not trusting those instincts. That definitely happened to me. I think that a lot of first time moms don't feel like moms yet. So don't realize that they have maternal instincts. So with Saul, I did everything right. Right. This is like another thing that we talk about. And, you know, how how does this happen to people or who does this happen to? Right. So we know that Preterm labor happens to Black women disproportionately. Um, you know, the rate is two to three times higher. So with Saul, I planned, right? I did all the things. I like went to college, got a job, got married, bought the house. And then we were finally in a place where we were like, we want to have a family. So we planned for that. I got prenatal care very early, very consistent. I ate right. I, you know, I didn't do anything that I wasn't supposed to do. But despite listening to her doctors and following all of the instructions, when she was 28 weeks pregnant, Kimberly went into labor with Saul. As a new mom, I didn't know what labor felt like, so I didn't realize that I was in labor with him. Looking back, she now realizes that she was in labor for two days before she went to the hospital. 
it still is a thing that boggles my mind in that I didn't go to the hospital sooner or that when I spoke about what I was experiencing or asking for advice or, you know, talking to the doctor or talking to the nurse, calling the hospital, that someone didn't just say to me, why don't you come in and get it checked out? Instead, she was told things like, this is normal. Your body's preparing for labor. This is a natural stage of your pregnancy. Just relax, you know, go and lay down and put your feet up. You're probably just nervous. You're a first time mom. When I really realized that something is happening, all hell had broken loose then. So when I went to the hospital, like my baby was in the birth canal. There was no stopping him. Um, He was coming out, whether we were ready for it or not. On June 7th, 2014, Saul was born. You know, that was rough. It was totally unexpected. I didn't know why it happened, but I did know that everything was not going to be okay. I just had the feeling that if my son came then, that he was not gonna live. I don't even know where I got that from because he should have lived in that he presented well. He was a big baby for his gestational age. He was breathing over the vent. He didn't, you know, need a vent. Um, He was taking breast milk like the next day after he was born. And so everything looked completely right. It looked like, you know, he'll probably spend two months in the NICU and he'll go home. He'll be a small baby. We'll figure it out. And, you know, like most moms, we we still, even though I had that instinctual feeling, I still held out hope. And I had this, like, belief in medicine and technology and the doctors. And I thought, they should fix him. They're going to fix him. That's what doctors do. But unfortunately, Saul underwent some severe complications due to his prematurity. And after days of treatment and excruciating uncertainty about what his outcome might be, Saul passed away when he was 20 days old. Another thing in our culture that we don't discuss or that we don't talk about is is acceptance of death as a part of life and and figuring out when enough is enough, right? Because just because you can do things don't mean you should do things. And so for us, you know, like Saul, like most people, he was our dream and we wanted him so bad we would have done you know everything when they kept giving us the prognosis like you know well he's probably not gonna be able to walk if he survives this we're like we'll we'll get the best wheelchair and they were like well he's probably not gonna be able to hear if he survives this and we and our answer was we'll learn sign language he's probably not gonna be able to see if he's ever well we can learn braille you know like we were just like just save our baby. We could do whatever it is that we need to do. But at some point, I had to look at my very little, very sick, sweet baby and figure that, what am I doing to him? What am I allowing these people to do to him? 
you know, like medicine has its limits. People have their limits. And so even when we don't want to accept that death is a part of life, it is. And so what I've come to learn much later is that the length of one's life doesn't take away from its meaning. My son's life is meaningful. It was short, but it was and is meaningful to me. He will always have his place in our family. He will always be my firstborn, my son. Kimberly and her husband Aaron went on to found Saul's Light after their son and have continued his legacy by helping support NICU families who have had experiences like theirs. The services Saul's Light offers include NICU family funds to assist families with non-medical costs, the establishment of little libraries and NICUs to provide books for parents to share with their babies, the donation of cuddle cots to allow families to spend more quality time with their baby who has died, and a peer support program for NICU and bereaved families to connect with others who have previously gone through a similar journey. And through advocacy work, Kimberly met Demetrius who, like we mentioned at the top of the episode, is now on the board for Saul's Light. As a nurse midwife, Demetrius has made it her mission to address infant and maternal mortality in Louisiana. And her professional experience in the arena is one of the reasons why she was so surprised when preterm labor became part of her story as well. I started off as a labor and delivery nurse when I graduated from nursing school, so back in 2001. So I've been in this arena for a long time. I didn't personally join the ranks of where we are with, you know, experience in prematurity and neonatal deaths until 2006. My husband and I were slated to have actually our second pregnancy. I miscarried the first time at about six weeks. So our second pregnancy, and I was about 25 weeks pregnant and started going into preterm labor with her. Prior to this, when Demetrius started showing symptoms of preterm labor, she chalked it up to dehydration and exhaustion. Nothing serious. But then when the contractions continued to come, um, my husband and I, we went to the hospital. The hospital staff tried desperately to stop the labor, but it got to the point where nothing was working. And that's when Demetrius realized that she would be delivering her baby that day. And so I immediately started crying because I knew that they couldn't stop the labor. My husband, on the other hand, was ecstatic because he was like, well, yeah, we're going to have the baby right now. And I was like, no, we don't want to have the baby at this moment. So when she was only 25 weeks pregnant, Demetrius gave birth to her daughter, Tristan. She immediately went to the the NICU. I was able to see her once I finished my recovery. It was a difficult struggle in the NICU because every week she was having a surgery. She'd do good for like a day and then like two days, three days, we have like these up and down roller coasters. It was a very emotional journey during that time frame. And then it almost feels like your world like stops and everybody else continues to move forward. This journey continued on for about six weeks. And then Tristan was diagnosed with a devastating disease called necrotizing enterocolitis, also known as NEC. The medical team tried to help, but they said that there was nothing that they could do. And Demetrius and her husband were told that they had to make a decision about withdrawing support. 
So we had either had to make the decision to take her off of life support or kind of let her, you know, pass away on her own. And so initially the decision, we were just going to let her pass away on her own. Um, but that night as we were holding her and still doing skin to skin and care like that, when I put um, laid her back to let her do the suction for her mouth, like she had these big tears in her eyes. And so from there, I was like, I can't, you know, continue to keep her here for, for my own selfish needs. And so we decided to wean her off the ventilator. My husband, myself, and then like my mom and his parents were there. And so we weaned her off over the course of a day. Um, and then afterwards, we were able to spend some time with her. After six weeks of living in the NICU, Tristan passed away. Once I went back to work, um, I found that I was able to really just kind of share my story with those who, you know, experience loss or experience prematurity. Um, because sometimes, you know, we don't always have the right answers or we want to say things and then it ends up being really insensitive, you know. Um, so I was just able to kind of just really share my story with people. And I think it, it helped me to heal and it also, you know, helped them along the way. In addition to Tristan, Demetrius has also experienced three other pregnancy losses. And all of this helps inform her professional work when it comes to client care in her own practice as a midwife. You see these things that happen to other people, but you don't expect them to happen to you. Um, so when you actually experience some of those same things, it's very different. Like, how do I deal with this? Like, I teach my patients how to deal with this, but I'm not really coping that well. I'm not nearly following anything <laughs> that I tell them to do. Um, so it changed me from that aspect. It certainly made me more sympathetic and um, and and empathetic and show more compassion um, for those who were going through that situation. So it helped me in that aspect to just be more sensitive and and to actually kind of rechange my teaching um, to really let clients know, like it may not present the way that you think it may present. You know, these are the signs and symptoms. This is what textbook says. But trust your gut, trust your instincts. If you don't feel like something is right, then by all means, I'll, I'll rather you come to the hospital 20,000 times as opposed to ignoring your instincts. And I said, God gave you intuition for a reason. So trust that. As we will get into more later in this episode, a lot of our discussion came back to the ways in which systemic racism manifested in birth experiences and outcomes of Black women. So I asked Kimberly and Demetrius specifically what their experience has been with grief, with all of that considered. Of course, everybody is different, right? Um, and you you will hear Black people say all the time, like, we're individuals. Usually, you know, if I say something that is, you know, somewhat like a generalization, it's usually informed by my experience and, and the Black women that I know. So speaking for us, our group. And so, yeah, I do think that um, grief is a more challenging topic in our community. It's not, you know, really something that we talk about. And there could be several reasons for that, you know. But one of the things I, I do think is this myth or this concept of or idea of being a strong Black woman 
And so I feel like that's been a generational thing, right? Ever since Black women have been in this country, we've always had to take various levels of mistreatment and push it down to be able to keep going. Grieving, being able to grieve and to hone in on that journey and the healing of it is a privilege. Everybody is not offered that privilege, right? And I think that it's something that Black women continue to do because it's what we've always done. It's what my mom did. It's what my grandmother did. It's what my great-grandmother did. You know, as far back as the women that I know in my family, they've experienced terrible things. You know, like my family uh, run the the gamut of the Black experience, right? So all of the things that you read about and hear about in history, they've gone through those things. But they never had the opportunity to open up about them and talk about their losses or talk about their traumas and the thing that the things that bother them because nobody cared. Nobody wanted to hear from them. And so they internalized those struggles without even passing on how it is that you get through things, right? Because probably, and again, speaking for my family, probably they don't know how they got through it. They just did. You don't have time to cry. You don't have the opportunity to cry when you have to go to work, when your family depends on you, when your grief is not validated. You know, how many, how, how many women um, throughout generations of Black women in this country have lost children. They weren't able to grieve those babies. And so I think that, like, my loss in particular, my grief journey and my healing journey, really, I think, connects me to those women in my family, to the Black women in my family, to women all over the world, but particularly women who are oppressed and women of color that have experienced traumas and that don't have the space and the permission, if you will, to explore that grief to get to the other side. And so I feel like sharing my story, Demetra sharing her story, what we're doing is we're freeing our sisters to come out of it right like don't hide this terrible thing happened to you it's not your fault and by the way when you speak it you're gonna free somebody else and we have to do that not for ourselves we have to do it for our grandmothers that's very powerful Kimberly and and I certainly uh, agree and everybody has their own way of of dealing dealing with grief but everybody goes through their own process and you don't I didn't realize even though I was in the medical field at the time but just how many women around me just in my circle had experienced similar things because it's not talked about and so that was huge um, because it, it helps so much in my healing process to actually speak to other women who have experienced this 
Right. So I think that that we do have to have a big push to let people know that it is okay to share your story, that you don't have to be ashamed um, about it. Your body didn't give up on you. Your body didn't quit. Like, you know, even though I delivered prematurely, I made it to 25 weeks. So, you know, like Kimberly has mentioned before, honoring those things that your body has done thus far so you don't feel that shame and that guilt. You know, I may not want to kind of talk about your story. I tell mothers all the time, especially those who have lost, uh, because Mother's Day can be particularly hard um, for women who have lost. And I call them and say, hey, you are still a mom just because your baby isn't here physically. You are still a mom. So stand up, recognize, be recognized, you know, as a mom. And so that's, uh, you know, that's really hard day for a lot of people, especially who have lost um, babies. So we, we tend to talk about that. And then just letting moms know that it's okay to receive um, counseling and mental health because as the black community, we it's all it's stigmatized. Like I'm not crazy. I don't have to go and see and I'm talk crazy. to a shrink. <laughs> you know, so it's it's very, very <laughs> right. And so it's very very stigmatized. <laughs> Um, and so just let you don't have to be crazy, you know, to go and talk to somebody. Emotional wellness is, is a thing. You have to be able to to take care of yourself. And it's, you know, to talk to somebody in a non-judgmental way uh, to help you work through some of these feelings where you can get some healthy coping habits. Because some of the things that we do for coping is very detrimental, you know, for ourselves, for our families, for our health. And so speaking to somebody that can tap into that. It's, it's, it was a big key for me. Um, with and right, you can, you can go to therapy and church. Yeah. You can go to both. Right. You don't have to, right. choose. to choose one or the other. You know? Right. It could be both. Right. You can be right. Christian and still have right. counseling. There are some, some things you cannot just pray away. You cannot. Some yes. things need a little help, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And so that might be talk therapy. Mm-hmm. That might be the um, mm-hmm. Bible study group. Mm-hmm. In addition to meditation or, you know what I mean? Like just, I think you're right. Being open to a a variety of healing forms, right? right? It doesn't have to be one or the other. And and you're not weak just because you weren't able to pray it away. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that, that's key for so many women, right? It's key for so many women. I believe in God. I have faith and I'll get through this. I, like you said, I, I've gotten through other things, but, but this is a whole different beast. <laughs> and it's okay to, to need other people to get through this process. And I had a mentor tell me like, it's okay to cry. She was like, you are watering your soul. Like let yourself cry, feel that emotion that you need to feel so you can deal with it and ask yourself, you know, questions so that you are able to process this in a healthy way versus internalizing it. And you like allow yourself to feel those emotions because a lot of times as women, because we have to be strong, we don't, we can't cry in front of other people. We can't show weakness. So she was like, let yourself feel your emotions cry. She's like, what are your soul? (laughs) So in the process of working through those feelings and like looking back on that time, with now it being years out and having time to think through it all, has there been anything that you have recognized or realized now that you couldn't have seen or understood back then? And an odd thing, and you know, because we're from New Orleans, so we believe in superstitions and signs and things like that. Well, I don't call it superstition, but other people do. Um, when I had Saul, I had um, a vision or like apparition that my grandfather came to take my son. And at the time I had no idea 
what that was about. You know, like my grandfather had already passed away. And I just thought maybe I'm having this vision or this idea of my grandfather as a comforting measure. But looking back on it, I think that the the message that I didn't get was this is how this is going to end. And what I think actually happened, right, is that I saw them hand him to another person. But that other person that I saw was my grandfather and walked away with him. It's funny that you mentioned that um, the night before Tristan actually passed away, like it was the first time that I was ever able to kind of be by myself. And I went to pump um, in the NICU. And so I just closed my eyes for a minute. And so I had this vision of like this little girl probably around the age of one or two running into the bathroom and she had this curly ponytail and she, you know, just walked in the bathroom while I'm using it. I'm like, I'm in the bathroom. (laughs) And so she just walked on in like, okay, like, but I'm coming in anyway. And so I was like, God, you're showing me, you know, that Tristan's going to live. And so that was the very night before she passed away. So the next day, so probably like midday when she passed away, the neonatologist was coming back and forth, just kind of checking the machine and things like that. And so my mom was there and, you know, his his parents were there. And so right before the neonatologist came back to tell us, you know, that she was gone, my mom said that she saw a vision of like my dad who had passed away, you know, very early and my grandmother. And so she and she said she saw another figure that she didn't know who it was. And so this was literally like five minutes before um, they came and told us that she had passed away. And so she told me that later on. And I actually end up having a dream maybe about six weeks afterwards where I could sense a presence was in the dream that I knew, you know, that it was somebody of, you know, familiar descent from me, but I just couldn't see their face. And so I was able to see Tristan in a dream and and kind of know that she was okay with, with where she was. Yeah. And I think just to you know, I don't I don't think we're going in this direction, but I wanted to <laughs> to throw out <laughs> I just wanted to throw out, you know, like what's happening now and in the wake of George Floyd murder everybody is saying and questioning like what makes this so different why is this so different and i think that at least for our community i can speak for the people that i know um that are black and you know that are mothers as well the way that we experience things and believe things when we saw that video and we saw him calling out to his mother right? It wasn't that he was calling for his mother to help him. When we saw that, all of us recognized that his mom that had already passed on was coming to get him, right? All people that passed away typically call for the people that have already passed away and that are coming to guide them. I've heard it before, I've seen it before. I don't know if it's a black thing. I don't know, you know, what the roots of that. But that's how I read it. But I feel certain that he saw his mother and that she was coming to ferry him to the other side. 
you say that, Kimberly. I was like, it, I mean, I've seen that with other people as well, and even myself. So even like my last pregnancy that I lost before my son at 10 weeks, like the morning that I was scheduled to go to the MFM to have my ultrasound, like Tristan was like hot and heavy on my mind. Like I hadn't like really thought about her in that aspect in a long time. And I was like, it's, I couldn't shake the feeling. And when we went to the, um, went for the ultrasound appointment, the, the baby had died, the baby didn't have a heartbeat. Um, and so I definitely believe in those premonitions and believe that people who have passed on that way. After the break, we will talk more with Kimberly and Demetrius about the issue of maternal and infant health and its intersection with the systemic racism in this country. Hi guys, it's Zach. Thanks for tuning in to Proximity. If you're enjoying today's episode, we invite you to listen to the other episodes we have available. And if you know anyone who might enjoy our show, please spread the word. At this point, the only reason we're making this thing is because we can. So it means a lot to know it's getting out there. And if you have any recommendations for stories or people to talk to, don't hesitate to reach out. Now back to our episode with Kimberly and Demetrius. With Demetrius being a provider and Kimberly having worked in the family advocacy space for a while, and both of them having their own personal accounts, I wanted to ask them to detail the issue of infant and maternal health at large. Here's Demetrius. So even as a provider, like the statistics, I mean, you see them there and typically what you learn, you know, it's, it's usually um, women who are not very highly educated or have a lower socioeconomic status. Like this is what we learn. This is textbook. So these are your people who are going to have these issues of, of preterm labor uh, when you look at the grand scheme of things. But that's not what you see. So for for other races, yes, but for black women it doesn't matter your your education level. It doesn't matter your social, you know, economic status. Like Kimberly said, you know, we did everything right. I had nutrition. I was exercising. Um, I was educated. I was I was finishing up, uh, you know, a month away from finishing up my, you know, nurse practitioner license at the time. Um, and you know, and and we live, you know, well. Um, so it doesn't matter these things that are in place. Um, that typically affect other races. So across the board, well, what is it if I'm doing what I'm supposed to do? What is it about me that puts me at such a greater risk? And the only thing that it boils back down to is systemic racism and the injustices that we have endured over such a long length of time that we carry all these stresses on us every single day and not knowing how they can affect our health and affect our bodies and just even how we process them. Um, you know, that all affects uh, your your well-being, your day-to-day well-being. Yeah, I think to, you know, working with other moms that have under, you know, that have experienced similar situations, the implication is that it's somehow their fault, right? So I see a lot of shame and guilt surrounding adverse birth outcomes. I felt it myself. And so 
where does that leave us as a community? It's not in a good place. And because there is shame and guilt and silence surrounding these issues, people are less likely to reach out for help. And so we see, you know, not only women being affected, but their relationships, their families, the future of their family planning, you know, deciding whether or not to have more children, um, deciding whether or not they can go back to their career. Um, I think that we start to see a sort of breakdown of sorts. Um, because when you go through something like this, it changes who you are. It changes how you respond to situations. And so, you know, for some people, if they don't get help, their development, their continued development as a person, as a mother, as a leader, as an employee, whatever it is, can be arrested at that moment. And so we have our community, our state, our nation, you know, is not rising to meet the needs of women. And it's one of the worst things I've seen, right, doing this work, because we know that women are the backbones of our communities, of our societies, of our workforce, of our families. Um, and so if we don't protect and take care of women, we're going to see the adverse effects of that in everything. It's not just one woman and her problem. It's all connected. In the U.S., according to data from the CDC, between the period of 2007 to 2017, Black women make up 40% of maternal deaths, despite only being 13% of the female population. As the New York Times reported in July 2020, the racial differences in maternal mortality are paralleled in racial differences in infant mortality. At 11.4 per 1,000 live births, the Black infant mortality rate is more than twice that of the white infant mortality rate, at 4.9. So I asked the women about the link between the two, maternal and infant mortality, and whether they were aware of this while they were giving birth to their own babies. At the time, it, the the maternal mortality piece didn't click for me as like the infant mortality piece did. Um, now, you know, I know that they're they're connected together. That you have to teach them about both because if if the mother doesn't survive, then it's likely that the baby's not going to survive, or or vice versa. So even if the, you know, if the baby doesn't survive and we still have mom, like Kimberly said, her mental health can be halted, you know, where she is. So it's, it's, I've heard this quote and I really like it. It says, if we think about the baby as like a piece of candy and mom is the wrapper, like you don't just, you can't just throw the wrapper away once you've, you know, gotten the candy out of it because the wrapper can go on to wrap other pieces of candy and other babies, right? Um, and so it's the same sentiments that we have to take care of mom and we have to take care of our babies and they are interconnected and they interconnect our families and our community. So even if, if a mom dies or a baby dies, I mean, that whole family, that community is affected by that. I think the same. Um, I was not in the healthcare field. So, you know, none of these things were, was information to me. And I would call myself, you know, well-informed. I had no idea. And certainly when I was going through it, the thought never occurred to me. And it took me like starting the Cells Like Foundation and like working with Demetrius and other providers 
and learning this information for me to realize that not only is that what happened to me, but it happened to other people that I knew. And so once I had that information, I was able to think back to instances where I felt that I experienced unequal treatment, you know, not blatant racism. That's the thing, right? People think that unless somebody calls you the N-word, it's not racism. Um, But I can absolutely remember instances of not being listened to and instances of not being taken seriously. Um, And when I did put those things together, it, it made me mad as hell because it's my child, <laughs> you know, like I, I really hate the like, what if, or shoulda, coulda, woulda, because, because we're here, you know, but I can't help but think that he should be here. My son should be here. And maybe he would be if I had been listened to. And maybe he would be if, you know, the person that I talked to said, why don't you come on in and check it out? Maybe they could have stopped my labor. I don't know. You know, maybe not. But still, (laughs) what someone should have said was, if you're worried, you should come in and get it checked out. (laughs) That's what I needed to hear, right? That's what they should be telling people. And so that's what I tell women now about like preterm labor or anything else. Like you said, Demetrius, if you don't feel that it's right, it's probably not right. These experiences, like it caused such a monumental shift in your life that there's no such thing as getting back to normal, returning to normal. That is not how this works, right? Even if your baby doesn't die, but you watch your baby fight for their lives in the NICU, you are not the same. And so it was very important for me in starting Saul's Light to not just support families with like everyday needs that come up because Demetrius talked about earlier how when you're in that position, your life stops, but the rest of the world keeps on going. So we're helping families with things like transportation or um, if they need help paying their bills or if they need diapers in order, you know, a car seat in order to, to take their babies home. We're helping with everyday things like that, but we're also building a community that envelops people on these journeys to be able to walk with them. When these monumental shifts happen, when people's lives are interrupted by the NICU journey or the bereavement journey, um, they don't have to go through it alone Um, because we have to value mental wellness. It's so important to who we are and it's so important to our community, especially. And so we recognize that people need to get back to life. And so our goal is to show them that, is to show them how to get back to life. So we've got Kimberly handling the parental support side of things and making a difference in that realm. But Demetrius, as a provider, what is it that you think we need to change when it comes to our approach to healthcare and maternal and infant care from your point of view? 
I think that it is certainly many changes that needs to occur, especially within our healthcare system, because right now we kind of have like a a top down approach where it's like your hospital administration, your doctors, your attorneys, you know, hospital attorneys are all at the forefront. And then the the patient who we're supposed to take care of and the families that we're supposed to take care of are kind of at the very end of this line. And, And so it's like we're catering more because we don't want the malpractice. We don't want the hospital suits. So you're catering more to that aspect of it where the patient is kind of getting left out. The patient and the family are getting left out and not really having the opportunity to make, you know, certain decisions. So Two big things that I think need to happen. The first thing is, you know, women-centered or family-centered care. So that means that the care is enveloped around the family. So we are catering to the family's need. You know, we can offer you the information. We can tell you um, the statistics, but ultimately it is your decision. You know, we're in this process together. So we're functioning more as a team rather than this is what I said and this is what we're going to do. So that certainly needs to change. And then empowering clients or or patients to really, like Kimberly said, have that voice, you know, that patient advocacy piece is huge. Really taking ownership of your own care, you know, and the things that happen for you, you know, whether it's getting more information, whether it's questioning your provider, um, because, you know, providers don't always have all the answers, or if they give you an answer that you're not comfortable with, okay, I don't have to stay with you. I can switch to somebody else. Like, this is my right. So really letting clients know that they have the power to switch to other providers if the provider that they're with is not treating them appropriately, not respecting their boundaries or respecting the things that they want to happen to them, as well as, you know, learning to speak up for themselves. And like Kimberly said, it's not all blatant, but just recognizing some of those things, you know, that are going on. And then if something does happen, okay, so now what are we going to do about it? Contact that patient advocacy department. Every hospital has one. It's best if you contact them when you're in the hospital yourself. Um, so that way they can send somebody up and they try to rectify the situation to see what's wrong. Those hospital satisfaction surveys are usually tied to patient satisfactions and how hospitals are ranked, Um, you know, if they want to be considered baby friendly or these other different designations that they have for hospitals, they're backed on those surveys. And those are going to be the big things that promote and push change in our healthcare system is for for patients to really advocate for themselves and for the families to advocate, you know, if the patient's not able to. Now, before this talk, I had actually gotten a chance to catch up with Kimberly over the phone. And she had made a point that I found really informative and important about the ways in which people pass judgment on families going through these types of experiences and the things that she's seen and heard in that realm. It was such a great point that I asked her if she could reiterate it during this conversation. Here she is. Like people think that they have an idea of how this thing happened or how people ended up where they are, you know, like. As a side note, I've had someone say to me, um, you know, my baby was born prematurely, but I didn't smoke, you know, as if to imply that I smoked and that's why my baby was born prematurely. Yeah. No, (laughs) no. Um, But, you know, same thing. People are are passing judgment. Um, And, you know, again, this is not everybody, but these are things that we know that happen. And so when we are working or, you know, providing service or building community in a city that is like New Orleans, right, it's 
um, you know, hospitality and tourism based, which means that a lot of jobs are going to be hourly jobs. And with hourly jobs, we all know you don't work, you don't get paid. There's no salary. There's no cushion. There's no built up um, vacation time or medical leave or things like that. And so a lot of our families typically also because, right, the NICU is um, largely made up of black and brown people. And we have a largely black and brown city that um, are in these jobs. And so how that manifests itself in, in the NICU is that people are working hard, right? They are usually um, surprised by a NICU stay. They don't see it coming. It was a shock to them. They haven't planned for it. So maybe they haven't saved for it. I don't know. Maybe they have. The point is they can't always be there every day for hours on end if they don't have the financial cushion to be able to do that. Right. And so to some people, whether it's other families or providers, they're noticing that nobody is coming to see this baby. Nobody is visiting this baby. Maybe they don't care. And that's not the truth, right? The truth is that maybe these people are not here because they're at work. They're working hard because if they don't work, they don't get paid. And if they don't get paid, then there are no groceries and there might not be any lights on or water on, right? Because there's there's no um, electricity company or water company. Um, that you're going to be able to call and say, well, you know what? My baby's in the hospital and I really need to be there so we can do kangaroo care. They don't care. That's the bottom line. You know, money makes the world go round. And so really to be able to go into the NICU and do skin to skin and, um, you know, pump every two hours and all these things, these things are luxuries. Everybody doesn't have that luxury. And so we can't assume that because nobody is visiting this baby, that nobody cares about this baby. Maybe they care so much so that they want to be sure that when this baby comes home, that we have a place prepared for the baby. And so I got to keep working to do that. But we know that when parents are there, when they're present and they're involved in their baby's care, they do better. It's like a no-win situation. What do you do? Um, and that is the point or the purpose, rather, of our financial fund is to be able to get people there. Everybody deserves to visit their baby, to cuddle their baby, to read to their baby, not just the people that can afford it. That is not acceptable. So if a family wants to visit, but they can't get there, then we're going to get them there, whether it's by bus or by cab or if they live, you know, 90 minutes away. Maybe they need a gas card. Maybe they haven't had time to set up a library because the baby came early. Then we're going to give them books to show and share with them that reading to your baby is meaningful. It's a way of bonding. It's a way of ensuring that your baby is developing cognitively. You know, there are ways to actively parent in the NICU, but people need to know how to do that. And it starts by first being present. But you can't be present if you can't afford it. It's terrible. 
not only that, another thing that we see is that with our babies that are um, born with neonatal abstinence syndrome or opioid withdrawal, we'll then see two moms who don't visit their babies in the NICU, right? And then the judgment is, well, her baby has drugs in his system. She doesn't care. It's her fault. And then the truth is that people that have these ideas and that are judging the parents are interacting with the parents in such a way that is making them feel guilty and ashamed. And so they don't show up because they don't want to be blamed for what's happening to their babies, right? And you can have whatever opinions you want. One thing that we know for sure through science and research is that addiction is a disease. Nobody wants their baby to be born with opioids in their system, fighting for their lives in the isolate and think, this is my fault. So like, don't ostracize that mom. She needs to be there. You need to encourage her to be there. You need to encourage her to hold her baby and to breastfeed her baby. You know, this is not about passing judgment on families. This is about helping families and supporting families. And moreover, when we don't support moms who have addiction issues, they're more likely to go further into their addiction. Whereas if we support them, in motherhood and parenting that baby, that might be their redemption. You bring up some great points because that's what research has shown is that the number one reason why people are not consistent in their care or forego prenatal care for that matter is because of the stigmatization and the fear of mistreatment from providers within the healthcare system itself. And just like you said, Kimberly, we have to be open and encouraging these moms to come in and to breastfeed and do skin to skin and to do this care. Otherwise, you know, like you said, the baby doesn't do as well if you don't have that figure present. This kind of ties back into assumptions that we make as even as healthcare providers and into some of that maybe even unconscious bias that we may have, right? So even when I went into preterm labor, I had I had a female, a black female obstetrician who was my provider, but she was just coming back from maternity leave. So when I went into preterm labor, she wasn't back yet, right? I had an appointment the very next day with her. So when I went into the hospital, the doctor who was on call was an older white male. Now, I knew him because I worked with him in labor and delivery, but because my labor happened so quickly, and so I had a small abruption, and that's typically common for women who may have some type of opioid use, similarly like cocaine use. It's very common, and for women who use cocaine. Now, you're not supposed to technically drug test someone without their consent. But like when my uh, OB came back and she saw the test that was that were ran. And so I had a drug test in there and oh, didn't no. even know about it. But she was like, you know, it's funny. They they drug tested you. And I was just like, well, I know nothing was in it because I'm not doing drugs. <laughs> so that's just an assumption, you know, unconsciously that people may have like, oh, well, she's coming in. She's in preterm labor. She's abrupt. And let me just drug test her. That's what systemic racism looks like. <laughs> We've got a little bit more time. So I asked both Kimberly and Demetrius what the biggest thing was that they hoped people would take away from this conversation. 
the biggest takeaway for me would certainly be for families and parents to realize that it is systemic racism in place and that these things, you know, we don't want to scare you, but just to know that they can happen and just really educate yourself on some of the signs and symptoms and just kind of following your gut. You know, if you really feel like that something is is different because you know your body and just following up on that instinct. And then the second thing is just, you know, choosing providers that that will listen to you. Um, you know, that's huge, you know, because you, you can experience biases in various forms. And so a lot of that is, you know, choosing a birth, a birth setting or provider that will listen to you and that values the same thing that you value. I would say to women that are grieving, especially Black women that are, are grieving, to never be afraid to reach out. For me, in my journey, I feel like my healing was jump-started when I met other women who had experienced infant loss. And for me, is when I was finally able to get that message of what Demetrius is saying, that what happened is not my fault. When you can forgive yourself, that is the healing. And But you can't get it if you're by yourself and you're isolated and you're stuck in your own feelings. You have to see other people that it's happening to, to know that it's not just this one thing that went wrong in your life. Unfortunately, it's happening to a lot of people statistically, right? Infant mortality in this country is really bad and double for black women. Know that your sisters are out there and they're ready to support you. And I think the second part is this, because we're, we, I feel like we're at the moment of racial reckoning in this country. And so like Black Lives Matter is trendy, but know that one, Black Lives Matter is a spectrum. It doesn't just apply to adult males that are being murdered by the police but it involves all of our lives, even our babies' lives, right? So black lives in the womb and out in the world matter. And so these systems of oppression and racism are affecting our lives before we even get started. It's gonna take all of us coming together to be able to fix that because it's not just black people's problem. It's everybody's problem, it's our country's problem, right? And so I'm not hopeless that things can change. I think that they, they absolutely can. But also when we talk about Black Lives Matter, I think it's important for people to know that while it does take everybody to work together to change what's happening, do know that Black people are already doing the work of liberating ourselves. We're not waiting for anybody to come and do it for us. I'm doing the work every day. Demetrius is doing the work every day. We know a lot of women and a lot of men that are doing the work every day. And we're gonna do this work, whether Black Lives Matter trends on Twitter or not. We can't stop. It's personal for us. And we want people to join in the fight with us, but not to take over not to speak for us, and not to perform allyship. 
center black voices and listen to black people about what they need because that's how we change things. We can share the mic. But now it's time for black voices to speak. This has been our episode with Kimberly Novod and Demetra Smith. We hope you enjoyed it. In our show description, you will find links to both Kimberly's nonprofit, Saul's Light, and Demetra's midwife practice, where you can follow along with them and learn more. Everyone, this is our last episode for the first season of Proximity. Thank you to all the folks who have been consistent listeners. We will be returning with new episodes in the fall, but in the meantime, we highly recommend going back and catching up on any episodes you missed. And if you feel so inclined, leaving us a review on Apple Podcast. It helps other people find these stories, so we would greatly appreciate it. Follow along with us on social media to stay updated on our upcoming season two. And as always, thank you for tuning in.